the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times business podcast. This is Wednesday, April 20th. I'm Kieran Hancock and this week's show is all about Brexit. The UK will vote on June 23rd on whether it should remain in the EU or leave. The implications of this move could be seismic both for the UK and for Ireland, given that it's our largest single trading partner and there are obvious implications for Northern Ireland. Earlier today, the Irish Times hosted a briefing on the Brexit issue and I'm delighted to have the three contributors to that event here with me in studio. Arthur Beasley, economics editor of the Irish Times, who moderated the session, economist and Irish Times business columnist John Fitzgerald and Dennis Daunton, the London editor for the Irish Times. Before I chat to them, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and it's also available from our website, irishtimes.com. But now to Brexit. And before this morning's event, the business podcast got the views of some of the attendees on what the UK leaving the EU might mean for Ireland. I'm Paul Savage from the Department of Agriculture and Food and Marine. Brexit is a big issue for us because uh, the agri-food industry is very dependent on the UK market. A huge proportion of our exports go to the UK market every year. Uh, So obviously the terms of any exit of the UK from the EU are very important, obviously, from an agri-food point of view. Marion Finnegan, Cherry Fitzgerald Group. Well, Brexit, I suppose, for the property market is a very significant concern and, and, and possibly an advantage for the marketplace. In comparison to London, we would offer the alternative, I suppose, to the London market. So we are looking at the impact of it, particularly in the office sector. Uh, Brendan Jennings, I'm the managing partner of Deloitte here in Ireland. Well, it's, in, it's, it's very important to us because uh, we deal with lots of companies, Irish companies that are operating cross-border. A lot, of, a lot of those are operating in the UK market and we can see that this could have a huge impact on them. Uh, my name is Jeff Short. Um, I'm an independent financial advisor. Um, so we deal in um, life, pensions, investments area. I think it's a significant factor for every business, I suppose. Um, you know, the, the trade between the, the, the UK and Ireland, very, very important. Um, you know, it brings money into the country and provides income for people in the country. From my business perspective, I suppose, if people are earning income in the country, um, you know, whether that be through the UK trade, um, in and out of Ireland or into the UK, it provides investment. I like to invest people's money. So, uh, you know, it provides business for my business. I can't really see any upside, to be perfectly honest. I, to be honest, I think the polls are very tight currently at the moment in the UK. I think if you look at the previous poll in, in the general election, um, you know, I, I think the polls got it completely wrong. I just don't think that England can or the UK can pull out of Europe. I don't think from a business perspective it's good for them. Um, I think the business people will vote on the day and I, I don't think it'll go through. Dennis Thornton, uh, you're on the ground in London, as it were. Uh, an interesting mix of views there from some people who attended this morning's uh, event. Jeff Short, that financial advisor, saying that he doesn't see how England can pull out of Europe. Of course they can. Uh, what's your view? They can. Uh, the polls, as he said, are very, very tight. And uh, most people on the uh, government side, on the Remain side, think that they probably will win the referendum in the end, but they're not so sure. And they've got good reason to be anxious because if you look at the trend, uh, the Remain side had a huge lead a few months ago. That's really gone down to single digits if it's there at all. And uh, most of the passion, most of the energy uh, is on the uh, leave side. People who uh, say they want Britain to leave the European Union are also, they also say they're more likely to vote than people who want to remain. And so uh, while the bookies would still make remain the favourite. It's certainly not a very sure thing. Yeah, John Fitzgerald, um, agriculture and property were two of the issues that were mentioned by some of the people there on the on the Vox Pop as being live issues in this whole debate for Ireland. Um, how do you see it? Um, I think there are, it, 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 there are a whole range of areas that we haven't thought of. Um, the free movement of labour. Um, there is also the retail sector. 
that if you walk down Grafton Street, um, most of the shops are British. Now you will have Zara and H&M, not on Grafton mm. Street, but around the corner. And it is going to be hugely problematic for the retail sector, because if you're bringing in a lorry load of uh, men's suits and uh, ties and whatever, maybe not ties, um, um, uh, from Britain, just stock up your shop in Dublin, you'll have to clear them all individually through. And there'll be issues of have they been sourced outside the United Kingdom, what tariffs to... Mm. It, it is really going to, in ways that we haven't thought of, make life difficult. Right. But do you think the Leave campaign have thought of these issues, that they have the answers well, to these well, issues? <laughs> That's looking at it from an Irish point of view. In Britain, um, the Treasury produced what seems to me to be a fairly standard, sensible assessment, which says it's going to be very serious for Britain if they leave. Um, and there are a whole range of areas they don't itemise particular companies. But Nissan, Newcastle depends on the Nissan factory. Um, uh, Nissan have indicated that they may well close and move to Europe because they could suffer duties. Mm. The plant that makes the wings for the Airbus aircraft is in Bristol. It's very complicated to get the wings from Bristol to Toulouse where they stick them on the planes. Um, And if you have to put tariffs on, on top of that, they'll make the wings in Toulouse much simpler. So really the Britain faces a major problem if they leave. Right. Arthur Beasley, the UK Treasury um, published uh, an assessment of what this might mean for the British economy and indeed for individual households. I think they put a a figure of £4,300 on the cost to each individual household if Britain leaves the EU because because of a a drop of in economic activity. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Is that scaremongering uh, simply by the UK government? Because clearly they're firmly... Cameron and, and George Osborne, the Chancellor, are firmly in the Remain camp. Well, I don't know if it's scaremongering. Certainly there is a dimension here that the the Remain side believes that the only way they're going to win the argument is by instill, instilling a sense of concern, uh, anxiety, call it fear, if you will, uh, around the notion of the risks that would arise and the very real threats that would arise on the morning after a Brexit and which would materialise only for many years to come thereafter. I think that occurs in a setting in which the, the emotional case to stay uh, isn't really there. I think it's pretty much well established at this point that the emotions are highest amongst those who would prefer Britain to leave. Yeah. John Fitzgerald, I think you've looked at that uh, Treasury as- assessment and, you know, you're you're a man who's uh, worked with GDP numbers before. Do, do those figures seem, seem pretty OK to you? I, I think immediately uh, the Treasury did a good job. And the fact that the good job comes out and says it's going to cost Britain a load in a referendum debate, and we've seen it here, when people produce objective research, which is on one side, immediately the other side says, oh, it's not fair. Or, mm. uh, but nobody, there isn't, like on migration, for example, there have been a whole series of studies that shows immigration is good for Britain and helps pay the social welfare bill rather than adding to it. Um, so there's... And not a single paper, which says academic paper done in a respectable journal, which says the opposite. Yet people ignore the evidence. So the Treasury evidence is as good as you're going to get. And there are other studies. It's they're, they're not identical. It's actually using an identical methodology, which Edgar Morganroth did in, used in an ESRI study um, uh, uh, looking at mm. the impa- implications for Ireland. But is the 4,300 figure uh, you it, know, per household? It is, it that, is a figure. It is it could, believable? Yes, it could be double that. It could be half that. But it will be big. Dennis Donton. 
But I think the problem with that figure is not whether the figure is right or wrong. It's actually just what the figure means. So what they did was that they divided up the loss uh, of, of GDP among all the households of Britain and then suggested that this was going to be a loss of income to those households, which is a, a kind of a category error, isn't it? No, well, if you lose your job in Newcastle with Nissan shut down or if your job in the city of London moves to Frankfurt or Dublin, Somebody's going to suffer from that. I think the other issue, though, uh, that the Leave side would have, say, when you're talking about migration, is that even if uh, if the net effect of migration is good for the economy and also pays into the you know, tax receipts, that the fruits of this or the benefits of migration are unevenly distributed, rather in the same way as the benefits of globalization and the benefits of European Union membership are unevenly distributed throughout society. Um, actually, the research shows that it helps pay the old age pensions of the people who vote UKIP, that their pensions is, is, is by, by the immigration. So actually the benefits, but it, it is such a complicated chain that results in the UKIP pensioners receiving benefits Im- from immigration sure. that it's difficult to explain. And let's talk a little bit about demographics, because uh, Dennis, you mentioned this morning that there are lots of dynamics in this uh, referendum. And, and one of them is that older people uh, are probably more inclined to, to vote leave, uh, while the younger cohort would under 30s would probably vote to remain. Uh, but it's it's the older crew who turn out to vote typically rather than, than younger people. It's a very, very stark demographic divide and really unusually so in that uh, by a margin of two to one, older people tend to vote, uh, want to vote to leave and likewise younger people by a similar margin want to stay. The other real marker is education. And so uh, if you've been to university, uh, if you finished university, you are likely to uh, want to stay in the European Union. And if you haven't, you're likely to want to leave. And those... Age and education are related because uh, more people are going to university mm. now. In the post-war years, it was maybe 5% of the British population went to university. Now it's about 50%, and that number is growing. So those are the two factors. And again, they sort of they almost cancel each other out, or at least we don't know how much they will. Because as you say, older people tend to vote more than younger people, but more educated people tend to vote more often than uneducated people, or less well-educated people. And so uh, so part of the, the, uh, of the science of all of this, or the art, is to try to maximize turnout and how to reach uh, the younger voters that the Remain side uh, needs, that is going to be the key issue for them. The other factor which has been uh, something which could make a difference to turnout is that, generally speaking, people who want to vote to stay in the European Union think that their side is going to win. Whereas people on the other side who want to leave think that they're not going to win. Again, this is shown in the polling as well as uh, as everywhere else. And that either of those could depress uh, turnout because obviously if you think your side is going to win, then they might need my vote. But also if you think you're going to lose... Oh, what's the point in bothering? So it's it's hard sure. to know how those uh, things are going to work. And actually on the issue of voting, there's a high court case. Uh, there's a legal challenge being taken at the moment, isn't there, by expats, Brits living abroad, basically, who want the right to vote in this referendum because they're worried about their pensions or whatever. Yes, Irish people, uh, Irish citizens are allowed to vote in the referendum. Uh, oddly enough, uh, although British citizens are allowed to vote in Irish elections, they're not allowed to vote in Irish referendums. But uh, but we're allowed to vote in uh, in the referendum, but citizens of other EU member states are not. 
Now, of course, British citizens living in uh, the Netherlands and in France were not allowed to vote in their referendums on the constitution, uh, the European constitution a few years ago. Likewise, British citizens living in the Netherlands were not uh, allowed to vote in the recent referendum there on Ukraine and the European Union. So I'm not sure how far this thing is going to go. But there's no question but when you meet a lot of European expatriates uh, in Britain, they will say this is a matter that affects not just people who live in Britain or not just British citizens, but affects it affects us and um, and we want to be involved somehow. Yeah. It's going to have a very big implications for the very large number of British people living in Spain and France. Yeah, there's about a million there. Brits living and in Spain. And they rely on the E111 and their health rights that suddenly they will lose access to health care in Spain if the EU leaves. Do they become, do we know, do they become foreign nationals in, in the real sense? No, they become like Americans. Um, uh, they've got to insure themselves independently. Right, okay. There's 400,000 Irish Arthabees living in uh, Britain. I suppose we can't be sure that they're all going to vote Remain, even though, you know, we here, um, generally speaking, want Britain to remain in the EU. Well, that's uh, that's true. I mean, there are tens of thousands of uh, Irish company directors in Britain, right? That is that is a matter of record. The second highest number of uh, foreign company directors in Britain, second only to Indians in, in British business. But I mean, I think you are right. I think there's a large body of Irish people in Britain who would probably see that, uh, yes, it's a good idea. They, they would have a sense of the importance of the EU in the Irish setting and in terms of the relationship as between Ireland and Britain. But that's not necessarily to say that all Irish people are going to decide uh, in Britain come the day that they're going to vote to keep Britain in the EU. I don't think that's an established fact at all. Yeah, John Fitzgerald, what happens if Britain votes to leave in terms of the relationship that it has uh, with the EU? What are are the potential models for them? Um, Well, uh, the Treasury uh, and the ESRI study both came out with the same basic models. You could go for the Norwegian model where you obey all the regulations, pay into the community budget, but have no vote that's not going to be feasible. The next is you have some kind of external trade agreement. It, it's characterised in terms of Canada. Bilateral. Yeah, but there, that would be that would have to be negotiated. And uh, the third is you're just under World Trade Organization rules. Now, this will all come out in the negotiation and something which Dennis talked about this morning, which for me, I hadn't really thought about, that they may vote to leave, but um, uh, they may not actually pull the trigger until they've negotiated. Yeah, and actually we've got a clip uh, of Dennis speaking at the event uh, this morning where um, I I think you outline a scenario whereby Britain might actually vote to leave, but uh, through various means might not actually leave. Let's have a listen to it. One Conservative suggested to me that Boris being uh, such a a slippery character, that that if uh, Boris, if they do vote to leave and Boris becomes Prime Minister, that he could start a two-year negotiation which would end with Britain staying in the European Union. That they would find some, uh, that they would find some deal which was effectively, you know, that, or have another referendum. So, I mean, all these things are possible. All kinds of things that look uh, impossible now, they could become possible then. Yeah, Dennis, I suppose first things first, if uh, Britain votes to leave, that's probably the end for David Cameron as Prime Minister. And that's where Boris Johnson uh, might, might might slip in and take over that role. Yeah, uh, David Cameron says that even if uh, he loses the referendum, he's not going to go. But in fact, I think he almost certainly will have to announce his resignation the following day. There'll be a leadership uh, contest in the Conservative Party. The way the system works is that the MPs uh, produce two candidates. They have a series of ballots. They produce two candidates. Candidates, which then go to the uh, to the broader membership of the Conservative Party. One of those candidates is likely to come from the Leave camp, 
uh, Boris is uh, Boris Johnson is possibly the most prominent of those names, and because the uh, you know most of the Conservative Party members are pro Brexit, that person is likely to win. So that's why people think that it could be Boris Johnson. The mechanism by which uh, a country leaves the European Union until the Lisbon Treaty, there was no mechanism to leave the European Union, but the Lisbon Treaty brought in this mechanism is called Article Fifty, and so the way in which you uh, if you decide you want to leave you trigger this Article 50, you apply to leave under Article 50, and then there's a a period of negotiation, a maximum of two years negotiation, which will end up with you leaving on whatever terms uh, that you leave on. Uh, Now, the issue is, do they immediately, does Britain immediately, the day after the referendum, say uh, to Brussels, okay, let's trigger Article 50 and set the clock running on two years' negotiations? Or do they say with their European partners, well, uh, you know, this is what the people have said, let's start talking? And so you actually have this kind of almost informal negotiation going before they actually trigger that uh, business of getting out. And of course, obviously, uh, negotiations can go anywhere. And the negotiation, one way it could end up is actually with them choosing not to leave. I mean, it's obviously, it's a complicated one, but uh, but that's surely, one way. Yeah, it but it would be extraordinary. I mean, surely there would be uproar among the leave side. There probably would be, but I mean, I think that, you know, I, so I think the most most likely thing would be that they would say, not immediately trigger Article 50, uh, but they would start some kind of negotiation, but the, that the negotiation could be rather long and drawn out, mm. that it wouldn't all happen within two years. And so what that would mean would be that there would be no change. There would be no change to Britain's relationship with Europe or Europe's relationship with Britain, our relationship with Britain. Nothing would happen for quite some time, except the one thing that would happen would be lots of uncertainty. And as John will tell you, uh, the economy doesn't like that. Yeah, uh, Arthur Beasley, you spent a number of years in Brussels covering uh, the machinations of the European Commission and the EU in its broadest sense. Um, how do you think Europeans would react to a leave vote? Uh, I think uh, very badly, really. I mean, they're going to have to accept whatever they're going to have to accept the mandate of the British people. It's a vote; it's an open vote in, in a democracy. But I think it's fair to say that uh, you know any vote for a Brexit is going to create a whole pile of political difficulty, both within European countries themselves and for the EU. And I mean, a lot of that centres on the question as to whether favourable or terms which makes an exit uh, somewhat smooth as to whether the granting of such terms would actually only encourage other Eurosceptics mm. in larger countries to ag- start agitating for them to start leaving the EU as well. And that's a, there's an undercurrent there in the, you know, in the argument that's coming from the Brexit camp. One heard Michael Gove yesterday, the uh, Tory uh, minister, uh, basically saying that, uh, you know, a repudiation of the EU by the British people would uh, herald the restoration of democracy throughout the EU countries. Now, uh, that seems to me to be an argument that doesn't really stack up, but is one which might have some resonance within EU countries themselves. Mm. And that's why I think the major European powers will be very, very, very reluctant to to make it easy for Britain to leave. Well, I was going to make that point to John Fitzgerald. I mean, France has kind of indicated that it's not going to make it easy. Uh, it's, it's not going to offer favourable terms to Britain if it, le- if it decides to leave the EU. Uh, in terms of the incentives, uh, the Dennis Daunton scenario, I think, is a very interesting one where they vote to leave, but they don't pull the triggers. They say, we're now ne- ne- going to negotiate the terms. From the European point of view, the nastier the terms, the more likely it is they will go back to the British people and say, like the Irish people, you voted wrong, go back and vote again. And it, like, the prob- the, one of the problems about this referendum is you don't know what the terms are if they leave. 
if the terms are then clarified and they're pretty unattractive, then they're more likely to change their minds. So from a European point of view, why give anything away mm. in the negotiations where there's a chance that it may force them to stay? And I think the other thing that's going to make a difference there is how big the margin is. So, for example, if Britain votes to leave by a very, very small margin, that obviously creates uh, the mm. option of a bit more wriggle room later. Whereas if it's a very decisive, if it's 60-40, we're leaving, then yeah. they're probably gone. Yeah. What about, let's flip it the other way around. Let's say the Remain side wins by a narrow margin. Does that end the debate uh, forever or or will the Leave side simply continue agitating for another referendum? It doesn't end it forever. And there are certain true believers that are never going to rest because as far as they're concerned, it really is about democracy. It's about sovereignty. It's about very, very fundamental things as far as they're concerned. And so they're not going to give up. But the problem is, where do they go? If David Cameron wins that referendum, he stays on in Downing Street for another while, that gives him an opportunity to pass the Conservative Party to somebody in his own image. which uh, would, uh, Possibly Osborne, possibly somebody else, but somebody who would keep uh, the Conservative Party within the mainstream as he would see it. The question then is, where do the ultra-conservative voters go? Uh, UKIP as a political party is already imploding. It's not doing any of the things that a political party as an organization ought to do. So they're talking about reinventing themselves in some way as a kind of a political movement afterwards. But what is not clear is where do those people go? And again, if you look at it demographically, that particular group that's voting remain, uh, the less well-educated, the older, they are disappearing. The number of people who go to university in uh, Britain every I think year. You mean the people who are, who are advocating leave? Oh, advocating leave, rather. Yes, sorry. The, 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 that's exactly. Those are the people who are dying out. But the number of people who go to university every year in Britain is equivalent mm. to a constituency that's being created every year. And so, so the, the vote to leave is, in a sense, a literal vote against the future. So you could find that actually, if they were to vote to leave, that mm. in 10 or 15 years, the demographics are such that uh, people would actually sure. want something different. Just take us through the regions, if you like, and, and how you think they might vote. We're going to talk about uh, Northern Ireland. Ireland uh, in a little while, but uh, just take us briefly through the regions and how they might vote. Uh, Scotland will vote uh, overwhelmingly to remain in uh, the European Union. Uh, you know, all of the Scottish political parties, with the exception of uh, of UKIP, are uh, campaigning for that. Uh, Wales is uh, also likely to vote to stay in. London will uh, definitely vote to stay in. And the places that are likely to go uh, against are the Midlands. Uh, that's the the strong outvoters in the Midlands, places like, like East Anglia. So it tends to be England outside the more uh, go-ahead uh, conurbations. Uh, the Economist did an interesting comparison of Cambridge and Peterborough which are only really a few miles apart, but they're very, very different because Cambridge is this high-tech, uh, highly educated uh, city, university not just city, because yeah. of the university, but also because of a lot of the uh, high-tech industry around it, whereas Peterborough is much more of an old uh, a town that's almost given up. And there, if you look at the voting intentions there, they're the opposite. Cambridge massively voting in favour of remaining, Peterborough voting in, uh, in favour of going. So the battle will be decided in England. And uh, But what could make a difference is how big the margin is 
in Scotland in favour of staying or in the Northern Ireland or in other places. And how important is the role of the opposition in all this, particularly the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn, who's been a bit of a Eurosceptic in the past? He's been a total Eurosceptic in the past. Uh, for 30 years, he's voted against every uh, European Union or pro-EU measure in the House of Commons. Uh, but he uh, he did intervene last week to make a speech in favour of remaining in the uh, European Union. And he said he could make a socialist case for doing so. He pointed out that uh, if... Britain were to leave the European Union, that uh, what would happen would be that they wouldn't escape from all of the, the nasty stuff from the European Union, but in fact they'd have Boris Johnson or somebody like him as Prime Minister who would then make a bonfire of all the workers' rights that uh, they have courtesy of the European Union. The reason Labour is important is because 47% of people who want to stay in the European Union are Labour supporters. So if the Remain side is going to win, they've got to mobilise Labour voters to turn out to vote. Okay. And finally, for this section of the podcast, um, the Post has got it very wrong in the UK general election. Um, can we be sure that their polling this time around is more accurate? No. Okay, we'll take a short break now and return with an analysis of what Brexit might mean for Northern Ireland. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life, September 2014. Welcome back. Uh, now, I mentioned the issue of Northern Ireland and in his talk earlier at our Brexit event, uh, John Fitzgerald, uh, an economist and Irish Times business columnist, had this to say about the implications of Brexit for this island. The strategic risk for Ireland is that we have managed with jointly with the British to resolve the Northern Ireland situation but this could be massively destabilizing. And I think the issue for the Irish government, and they need to be ready, and that we need to have a government ready on the 24th of June to take action if the UK, vote, UK votes to leave. Um, for example, uh, legally, we have a joint opt-out on Schengen uh, with the United Kingdom. Legally, we will be automatically opted into Schengen if they leave. We will, if we are, uh, uh, which will require us to put up immigration barriers on the border with Northern Ireland. John Fitzgerald, a rather stark picture painted there that we might have to reinstate border controls. Is that really going to happen? Um, I think it could happen. And I think the priority for the Irish government after, uh, if there is a no vote, will be to try and avoid that happening. Mm. Um, that... My feeling is that if they negotiate with the EU, they may find our partners sympathetic to the problems. And after all, we did jointly with the British resolve a major terrorist problem in Europe that they won't want to destabilise that. But it won't be easy. And of course, we would need British agreement to maintain free free movement. It is likely that any agreement uh, uh, with Britain is going to involve us having to ha employ customs people and put them all along the border to check goods going across. The issue is, will we have to employ immigration officers to check everybody crossing the border? 
um, after uh, they leave, uh, which I think would be a hugely destabilising in terms of Northern Ireland. And we would probably need a load of guards to protect the infrastructure in that even when there wasn't major trouble in the north, they the porter posts were blown up in the in, in the early 60s. So I think that the issue, uh, uh, first of all, that direct issue. The other thing is that Northern Ireland will become a bit of an orphan. Um, and we need the United Kingdom to look after Northern Ireland, but they pay no attention to it, that the Irish ministers will actually have to help raise Northern Ireland's profile in London and mm-hmm. say, look, actually, remember, this is going to be awful for the Northern Ireland economy look after their interests in the negotiation. Yeah, by the way, can you explain the Schengen thing to listeners? Because we have a common travel area uh, with the UK and I think that predated our our membership of the EU. So um, explain this whole Schengen situation. We we had to join to opt out um, so that we can maintain the, 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 the common travel area. However, if we're in Schengen, the rules are that you have to check everybody coming into Schengen um, um, check their passport um, so that if Britain is not in Schengen and we're in Schengen, we will have to have immigration controls where we check the passport of everybody crossing the border in Dundalk or Belik. Right. Uh, and actually, I, I think uh, the point is well made because the common travel area dates from the, uh, the mm. 1920s. And when Britain and Ireland joined the common market in the 1970s, we got a special dispensation to allow for this common travel area because it, mm. it involves preferential treatment for one another. That's now written into the European treaties. But clearly, if Britain leaves, that, uh, that disappears, really. And so it has to okay. be renegotiated. I mean, this could be very destabilising for uh, Northern Ireland, as John has sort of painted the picture. Um, Why then is the DUP campaigning to leave uh, the EU? Uh, Because uh, uh, the DUP is a Eurosceptic political party. That's uh, that's what their identity is. I think there was a debate within the DUP as to where they ought to go. Mm. And it's also, uh, according to the polling, a majority of unionists in Northern Ireland want to leave the European Union. Uh, now, uh, I'm not sure that some of them have thought through exactly uh, some of the things that are likely to happen. Uh, if, for example, Britain leaves the, uh, the European Union, if most people in Scotland have voted to stay in the European Union, that would almost certainly trigger a second Scottish uh, independence referendum. And there is a possibility that this time the Scots will vote to, uh, to leave uh, the United Kingdom. So you then have the polity of the United Kingdom being made up of England, Wales and Northern Ireland. And you have a lot of people, a lot of unionists in Northern Ireland, they trace their British identity through Scotland. Mm. And it, and I think if John speaks about their orphan status, that orphan status would would in a sense be even deeper in terms of identity. So I think that uh, that perhaps unionists would be voting against their own interests uh, if they vote uh, to leave the European Union. But as but that is the view of uh, of a majority of unionists. Yeah, to the polls. John Fitzgerald. If we do have another uh, referendum in Scotland on its independence, you know, on the basis of Britain leaving the EU. Uh, it would be, it's hard to envisage a Scotland being part of the EU with the rest of Britain not being part of the EU. That's hardly the ideal situation for them. It would be very difficult for Scotland. Um, um, and also, it will face England with all sorts of issues, having to put a border and immigration controls um, um, on the border And presumably it would have to join the single currency. Um, I, I, at some point. I, at some point. 
Yeah, okay. Arthur Beasley, let's talk about the, uh, the this Irish-Northern Ireland situation. Uh, we don't have a government at the minute. Uh, we're, I think we're in day 54 since the general election. Um, potentially, how destabilising uh, is that? I mean, what kind of contingency planning is going on at the moment? And are we losing out as a result of not having a government in place? Well, I, I think there's, there's no doubt but that there is a, quite a degree of work underway within the, the apparatus, if you like, of state. But, I mean, the fact is that you have a government which is on its way out, which essentially has no mandate and which is going to shirk any difficult decision that there is to be made. And there's another element here as well, which is that in the talks on the formation of the new administration, all of those talks are predicated on the absence of any shock from any Brexit. And it's quite clear that if the British people do vote to leave, that there is potential for a pretty seismic economic shock within a matter of weeks. And at that level, that calls into question all of the assumptions around the growth of the Irish economy in the latter part of this year and going into 2017 and the years thereafter, thereby calling into question the very basis on which Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil and all the other parties have been involved in these very, very, very difficult, prolonged and fruitless talks. Yeah, it's going to be difficult, obviously, with Sinn Féin in opposition as well. They're going to be a, a very loud voice in Dáil Éireann on this whole matter, particularly if there's talk of reconstituting border controls, extra Gardaí perhaps on the border, maybe, you know, putting the army back on the border, etc. Absolutely, there's no doubt about that. And there's no doubt about that. And it's also the case that in, in any minority government scenario, that whatever uh, accident or whatever screw-ups emerge within, those gov- within the government, mm-hmm. that those screw-ups... In a majority government scenario, they contaminate the government, but in a minority government scenario, they serve to contaminate the guarantor of that government, and the guarantor of that government would be Fianna Fáil in opposition, uh, which would be open to uh, an onslaught from Sinn Féin. Now, you can say what you like about the merits of a Sinn Féin onslaught, but that's going to be the political reality. Yeah. John Fitzgerald, if Britain uh, chooses to leave the EU, um, should we follow them? I mean, that idea has been posited by certain commentators. Oh, it would be utterly catastrophic. If you look, our standard of living before we joined the EU was about 60% of the EU average. It's now of the EU 15. Um, we're now significantly above the EU 15. So it has allowed us um, a- approach a very high standard of living through selling into a broad European market. Um, so I think that would be catastrophic. There's absolutely no chance of that working. Even though so much of our trade goes to the UK, even though, you know, it's our closest neighbour, even though the Northern Ireland situation? It's a, it's as it, it, When we joined, it was 60-70% went to the UK. Now it's 15 or 18%. The vast bulk of our trade is with the rest of the EU. The U- UK is important to us, yes. But we have managed to... Uh, de-risk ourselves by not being dependent on the United Kingdom um, and being dependent on a much broader range of countries in the EU. Arthur? And the, the argument in favour of an Irish exit post a British e- exit seems to me to be predicated on the notion that Britain would be a- Britain outside of the EU would be able to offer far more favourable con- uh, terms to foreign direct investors into the British economy and would thereby be able to undercut an Ireland which would be hobbled by the rules and regulations of the EU 
EU. Now, frankly, I don't think that that actually stacks up and that negates all of the other benefits that Ireland derives from its access to the very large Eurozone market. Yeah, OK. Now, there was a very interesting view posited uh, this morning by Danny McCoy, who's the chief executive of IBEC. He thinks that the EU needs the UK more than the UK uh, needs the EU, essentially, uh, and that a Brexit is probably inevitable, if not, if not now, maybe at some time in the future. Let's have a listen. And also the fact that's remarkably uncommented upon is that with the momentum that Britain has at the moment in a generation, it will be the biggest economy in Europe. And so the notion when we said that the relationship between Britain needing Europe more than Europe needing Britain, I think is a very contestable comment because nobody would have predicted the deal that Britain got in February of this year to go back to the electorate. Two years ago, people were talking about them slinging their hook and so on. And I think that one of the implications for Ireland is not what happens actually on the 23rd. That, is, that will probably be, lead to a speed of adjustment and a speed of uncertainty that will be very uncomfortable. But one of the implications, what's already certain, is that Britain is now going on a different destiny to the rest of Europe. This is now inevitable. John Fitzgerald, would you agree with that analysis? No. Um, I think if the UK leaves the EU, the, all the research shows that the UK is going to be much worse off. Instead of being growing, it's going to go, go downhill. Arthur? And one of the arguments made by Michael Gove yesterday in what was supposed to be like, the very grand launch and like the, the compelling argument for a Brexit was that a Britain outside the EU would be part of a single free trade area encompassing Iceland, Serbia, Albania, Liechtenstein, mm. and uh, maybe crew, Turkey. Yes, well, it is not quite the, the organic hole that you get in the uh, present EU, and it's a good deal smaller. Yeah, Dennis, are you, are you getting the sense that British people are excited about a free trade agreement with Iceland, Albania, Turkey and the like? No, but uh, the, the problem that the Leave side has really in terms of when they talk about what sort of trading arrangement they, they want to have, and they can't, uh, you know, they can't specify which one they like. And the difficulty is that the closer the trade relationship that you have, like, for example, Norway, which has full access to the single market, if you want full access to the single market, then you also have to accept all the rules, which include free movement of people. You've also got to pay for it. And you also have to pay for it. But the paying for it is not the, uh, the key thing. It's more just that, uh, you know, the whole point of, uh, of leaving the European Union is to unshackle yourself from all these rules imposed by foreigners as far as they'd see it and also to, to control your borders. So if you can't control uh, your borders then you're alienating part of your vote. On the other hand, if you say we're going to have uh, total freedom just to operate on the basis of WTO rules then of course you have much more limited access to uh, the single market and all kinds of important sectors. And one of the points for example that Peter Mandelson uh, offered makes is that even trade bilateral trade deals where you might find that 94% of uh, goods are covered uh, are tariff free. It's often the crucial 6%. The 6% that aren't are often the ones that really matter to you most. And so uh, they can be, you know, these figures can be deceiving. And the other thing is that it's not going to be possible for a Britain outside of the EU to enter bilateral agreements with any of the EU member states. And that's one of the major problems that the Irish state faces because you would say that, oh, look, okay, this is all going to be terrible. We have to deal with it. We have to deal with it in political real time pragmatically. 
The pragmatic thing would be to enter a bilateral arrangement and everyone, we, we go on as we did before, before we all joined the European Economic Community, but that's not going to be feasible yeah, because John, we are tied to the other members of the EU. John Fitzgerald, the other issue for Ireland really is that uh, Britain is a very uh, good ally, I suppose, uh, around the negotiating table uh, in Brussels or has proved on various issues, particularly corporate taxation uh, in the past. If Britain decides to leave, we lose that natural ally. Yeah, in recent years, we have found ourselves on the same side on quite a a number of things. We have been allies, so we will miss them. However, if they vote to stay in, they actually have been a pretty, an ally that doesn't turn up a lot of the time Mm. and doesn't play much role in, in, in Brussels. If they've decided they wanted to stay, maybe they'll actually pull their weight in Brussels and that might be helpful to us. Mm. And of course, more and more of our negotiations, I guess, are in the Eurozone context. And, you know, Britain is largely on the outside looking in in that regard. Yeah, um, in, in that the Europe negotiates access for us to the US, um, like they've, they've, uh, we've benefited from the uh, tra- travel, although there are negotiations going on with a Norwegian airline. There are a whole range of things which have we just hide under a European umbrella, or not hide, but we benefit greatly yeah. from a European umbrella. Dennis Thornton, what about uh, Barack Obama um, and you know people like Hillary Clinton, who've made it very clear that Britain, in their opinion, should stay in um, the European Union. And the Americans have kind of made it clear as well that they really don't like doing bilateral trade agreements with single entities. They much prefer to deal with big, large blocks like the EU. Absolutely. You had eight former uh, Treasury secretaries from the United States writing a letter this morning saying you've got to stay in. That's actually never happened before that you've had these people going back to Nixon, uh, Nixon's time. And Barack Obama is uh, on his way to Britain where he is going to make the case for Britain staying in. As far as the United States is concerned, I mean, people here often sneer at the notion of the special relationship between Britain and America. It's actually real in many ways. Uh, Britain is the first country that America tends to turn to. It's particularly real and things like intelligence sharing and defence and everything else. But for uh, the United States, part of Britain's value is that it's in the European Union. And if suddenly Britain were to be gone from the European Union, certainly uh, the United States would continue to smile favourably on them, but they just would be not as interesting or as useful as right. Okay, I should have asked you earlier, in terms of the Anglo-Irish community, you mix uh, a lot with them over there, obviously. Uh, is, is there any sense among them, are you getting any sense that they believe that Ireland should consider leaving the EU if Britain decides No, but I think that's uh, a question that's not really going to come up until afterwards. I mean, I think that uh, there are so many things we don't know, and I think the mood and the atmosphere is going to change the moment that Britain leaves, if it does. And I think that uh, one of the arguments that's going to be made for Ireland to consider its position is not just the economic one, but it could also be a cultural and a political one. If you think of one of the great achievements of the last uh, couple of decades, it is uh, the improvement of the relationship between Britain and Ireland and the closeness of this relationship which is, uh, you know, it's a much more benign relationship than it's been at any point since independence. And the idea that uh, you might have to sacrifice some of that intimacy for the sake of our European destiny. It just might be an yeah, argument yeah. that people are having more than people imagine they will right now. Uh, and John Fitzgerald, do you think that being under the umbrella of the EU actually helped to resolve some of those issues that have been lingering for, for decades or would, have, it's been would huge, it have happened? It's hugely anyway? important. I began working in the Department of Finance in September 1972. All the files in Ireland's external economic relations were about going to London as a mendicant and begging for access to the British market. I sent them to the basement and in the subsequent 12 years I was in the department, they were 
never taken out again. I then found myself nine months later going to Brussels at a very young age at a meeting and I was equal to my German colleague, my French colleague. And you play in a multilateral world where you're treated as an equal. In the last decade, I went a number of occasions to London on behalf of Northern Ireland and I never want that experience again. You are like going into the Treasury and some young person comes along and says, I'm deal with the nations and he doesn't want to hear anything from you because you're from Northern Ireland. Whereas within the EU, we play as equals. So I think that that it has transformed our relationship with Britain because we're equals and they recognise us as yeah. equals. Arthur, you probably saw that at first hand during your time in Brussels. Uh, there's no doubt. And I, mean, I think it's also important to say that uh, at the very f- first moment of the time of the Irish bailout that uh, the uh, the British government came forth with a with a bilateral loan to Ireland as well yeah. at that point. At that point, and David Cameron and, and, had to argue that point in yes, Parliament. Did, yes, and, and, and they did the deed and without any compunction and not all of the non-Eurozone countries did so. So I mean, I think there's no doubt that the relationship has changed. Go back to the Americans. I mean, I think a lot of the people on the Brexit side would say that, oh, yes, but it's all very fine. Uh, we will maintain our access to all of the other European countries via NATO, which itself is headquarters in Brussels. But that seems to me to be quite reductionist in a scenario where people say that, oh, look, you know, this is not all about economics. Or uh, to say that, you know, Britain's international relations with all of the other European countries are going to be based solely on the base, basis of defence seems to me to be uh, rather less whole than the admittedly imperfect relationship there is right now. Dennis. There's one argument uh, on the Brexit side, which I haven't mentioned, but uh, which is very important from the point of view of their support. And that is to do with the amount of money that Britain pays into the European Union. So they've conjured up a figure of £350 million a week that uh, Britain pays into the European Union. Now, Britain has a budget rebate so that it gets back a certain amount of that automatically. So the figure is £280 million, And then uh, an awful lot of it comes back in other chunks of uh, direct payments to farmers, other subsidies. But the problem is that, uh, you know, if you talk to people who want to leave, they'll say, well, okay, maybe it's 280, maybe it's 200. We want to control this ourselves. We'd actually prefer Mm. uh, to be able to decide. That seems like a fair enough... Thing to say. And that is quite a potent argument. And I think one of the reasons why this figure that the Treasury came up with of £4,300 uh, a year, whether it's the right figure or the wrong figure, it almost doesn't matter. It's another figure to throw up against the 350 a week okay. so that once you're arguing about it, you're... OK, gentlemen, it's time to look into your crystal balls now and call the outcome of the referendum. Arthur Beasley, remain or leave? Uh, I think they will ultimately remain. I think the margin will be quite slim. But at this point, listening to the argument, I think they will. But it's uh, by no means a sure thing. John Fitzgerald? Uh, Listening to Dennis, I think that my suspicion is they will vote to leave, but may not leave. Uh, Listening to what Dennis says, that there is a chance that they may go back and, like Ireland, vote again. Interesting. Dennis? I think they'll vote to remain. Okay. do you want to call the margin? I think it'd be I think it'd be quite narrow, but I wouldn't be so sure about that. It actually could be a bit more substantial. But I think that the uh, I think Project Fear is working. Okay, that's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to John Fitzgerald, Dennis Staunton, and Arthur Beasley. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times Business feed each day on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.